and this woman and her daughter came walking by and she stopped and she said, oh, thank God, there he is, there you guys are. And I had never seen them before. And I said, yeah, here we are. And, you know, hi. And she said, we look for you every night. And we were so worried when we didn't see you the last three or four nights that something had happened to him. And she kind of lowered her voice. And she said, you know, every night we look for you because you set an example for us of devotion and patience and kindness and looking at you with your really old dog helps remind us to be patient and kind toward each other. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Have you ever loved a pet? An inseparable, adored, pain-in-the-fanny pet? Well, today's guest has penned a glorious memoir based on her unconditional and mutual love between her and her unforgettable dog. Their story is one that will touch you deeply and remind us of the glorious connection and deep, deep love we have with our pets. So please welcome to the podcast, Jenna Blum. Jenna, welcome. So happy to be here, Ron. Thank you for having me on Writer's Block. I love friends and fiction. I'm really honored to be here. Oh, and you're like the perfect guest for this. This book is so worth talking about. And I think that we're going to, we're just have a lot to talk about. So let me tell everybody a little bit about you before we get started about the book. Jenna is the New York Times and number one internationally best-selling author of novels, Those Who Save Us, The Storm Chasers, and The Lost Family. She was voted one of Oprah Reader's Top 30 Women Writers on Oprah.com and is the co-founder and CEO of literary social media marketing company, A Mighty Blaze, which we will talk about. Jenna earned her MA at Boston University in Creative Writing and has taught writing workshops at Grub Street Writers for over 20 years, which is interesting because she's only 25 years old. She's interviewed Holocaust survivors for Steven Spielberg, survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation, and is a professional public speaker traveling nationally and internationally to speak about her work. Jenna's based in downtown Boston, where she lives across from Woodrow's Bench and is currently a dog mom to her new, adorable black lab puppy, Henry Higgins. So I always like to give a little review of it. And the one I found that was so touching because it's someone that we both adore. Elizabeth Berg said, Woodrow on the Bench is a touching tribute as well as a gripping story that will make you laugh and cry. It will also make you understand the majesty and wisdom imparted by the animals we are lucky to keep by our sides for as long as we can. That just epitomizes the book. So once again, Jenna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much again for having me. So tell us kind of the elevator pitch for the memoir. Thank you. So Woodrow on the Bench is the story of my beloved Black Lab Woodrow and the last seven months of his life, during which Woodrow 
was not really mobile because he was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. And he was adding that diagnosis to a problem that many labs in general have with their back legs, which is that when they get older, the legs start to go. So he basically was an 85 pound log that I carried um, as far as I could every day, which was to this bench across the street from my downtown Boston apartment. And I carried him in this harness called a help him up harness. And there on this bench, we would sit and sit and sit. And to my great astonishment, over those seven months, a whole community grew up around us, not just neighbors and friends, as you might expect, but total strangers who Woodrow, the canine tractor beam, would pull to him with his elegance and his big toothy smile and his long crossed legs. And people would come and spend time with us on the bench and tell us their stories and show us their photos of their kids getting married or their own elders and how they were caring for them. They would bring us food. They would help me get him back across the street. They stopped traffic for us. And I realized that in the seven months where Woodrow was living his last chapter, he and all of these people were teaching me a new way to live and how to let people in and how to love and how to deal with loss. So Woodrow on the Bench is an homage to those people, friends and strangers alike, and to Woodrow, of course. And it's written for anybody who has ever loved and lost a dog and also anybody who's going through the passage of grief. Yeah, there's a lot in there about your own grief journey, not only with Woodrow, but with your mom, too. So I think that was interwoven through it so beautifully. And really, it's just full of wonderful, wonderful lessons for people to take away. It's a tough story. It's a hard story to tell. It's got to be. What made you feel like you could actually put it on paper and talk about it? For the first time in many years, I felt an imperative to write. I know so many writers. I'm blessed to know so many writers who write all the time. And I am not one of those writers. I write when a story really seizes me and then I'm incapable of not writing it. And when Woodrow was in his final days, especially like his final weeks, I felt the story taking shape in my head because it was the best way I knew to honor my dog is to use my biting expertise and and the chops that I built up over 20 years of of doing this professionally, I thought I really just need to write a memoir about him. And those seven months gave me this basket to do that. That, I mean, usually if I think, oh, I'm going to write a memoir, I just think I'm not really (laughs) capable of that. I have big situations in my life. I would love to talk about them. It might help other people. But how does one even go about putting one's arms around a really big situation like a parent's death or a loved one's addiction or any of those huge things? Um, but with Woodrow, like he made it so easy for me, as he did for many things in life. He gave me those seven months and I thought, OK, I really want to write this to help people who are struggling with their pets getting older because I don't remember any other book about that. And once you add in the community support level I thought this is really something that needs to be told is this drawing together of goodwill around this old dog, especially in a time of national disunity and international strife, like to see people coming together because of an old dog was so magical. And so that's what gave me the impetus, actually the compulsion to write the memoir. Yes, yes. And in reading the book and and actually having followed your journey on social media too, through this, it was Brilliant. And one of the things I was struck by was how people were drawn to Woodrow. They had nicknames for him. They forged friendships among themselves as well as with you and with Woodrow. What were some of the really surprising things that came out of that? 
Well, for one thing, Woodrow's nickname for most of his life actually was Woodrow the George Clooney of dogs. My friend Lisa Borders, who is a great novelist, dubbed him that when he was much younger because Woodrow was always a ladies' man. Yes. He could spot a beautiful lady four blocks away, even when he had cataracts and you know his eyes were like the color of milk he'd still be like oh i see a lady down there a beautiful lady and he would sit up and and women were just drawn over to him there was one moment that really shocked me this beautiful woman who was visiting downtown boston from italy came toward the bench as if she were being pulled there and sat down in the dirt with woodrow and she was wearing white jeans it was summer wow. i don't really forget that and she was crying and petting his oh. head and saying, oh, this one, he has such a special soul. I can just tell. And her boyfriend kept trying to drag her away and apologizing to me. And I was saying, no need to apologize. But that was the kind of power over people Woodrow had. People were just drawn to him. He was just one of those dogs, I think. I, I think you're right. And just anybody who hasn't, get, get a peek at the cover of the book and go check out Woodrow has his own social media account on Twitter and also on Instagram. And those, it's just go back and relive that. And it's just, it's very touching. And it's still, um, well, as you know, this book is very emotional for me and for so many other people, but there's so many good things that came out of it. Can you talk about some of the, the life lessons that you hope people are going to take away? Yeah, absolutely. So when I started pitching this book to my agent, who's not a dog person, and my editor at HarperCollins, who also is not a dog person, um, I pitched it as being like Tuesdays with Maury, but with all of the lessons coming from a very elegant old black lab. And the format of the book is that there are seven months. Each month of Woodrow's life has a different lesson attached to it. So the first lesson is never give in and talks about how Uh, For many people, when Woodrow lost the functionality of his back legs, that would have been time to help him cross the river. And then he got this congestive heart failure diagnosis. And um, many people would have let him go then. And I was just bound and determined not to do that, Um, which is just sort of a lesson from my own life. It's applicable to being a writer. If you give in, you're never going to get anything published ever. So there's a sort of ingrained stubbornness. And I'm so interested for readers to let me know whether they think I took that too far. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in discussion about that. But that's the kind of lesson that the book starts off with. And then there are lessons into how to let people in, how to lean into support, which is really difficult for me. And I know for many people saying, I need something. I need help. Um, I need company. I need to talk about this. I need food or just even letting people into your life when you're not looking or feeling or sounding your best. Woodrow taught me how to let people into my home to help me with him when I was on the floor in my underwear covered with the only food he would eat, which is macaroni and cheese and like chicken salad, like little flecks of that. So it really taught me to be more flexible. And finally, he taught me to be present and to accept the gifts that people were giving us, like my friend Kate taking us to the beach so that Woodrow could swim one last time, even though he couldn't walk then. And believing the impossible, uh, and then learning how to let go, which is the hardest thing of all. Yeah, that was the probably the toughest part of the book. But it's, at the same time, I, I, I think um, throughout the whole thing, all I could say to myself was how brave you were to share this, because this is so personal for people. And just to learn to let those people into your life, it's it's a really difficult lesson for people to learn. But boy, you really laid it out there for people. And I hope that people walk away with that as something to do. So Woodrow, you mentioned a little bit about 
food habits. He had a lot of uh, really fun, fun food habits. So what were some of the favorite things that Woodrow would, would want? Woodrow wanted everything because he was alive. Of course. <laughs> so he was always starving. And Woodrow's voice, which he projected into my head, sounded like a combination of George Clooney and Barack Obama, which is what I told the audiobook narrator for Woodrow, Anne-Marie Gideon, who's great, and who got on the phone with me and practiced this over and over so that she could get the Woodrow voice right. But the Woodrow voice was always saying things like, Mamu, which is what he called me. Something is very wrong. The dog is starving. The dog needs to be fed. And he had this voracious, voracious appetite. So, of course, anybody who has a lab will recognize when he was a puppy and we left him unattended with people who had never had labs and he got into the garage. He ate a whole garbage can full of kibble and he was about a year old and his stomach swelled up like a basketball and had to be pumped out. And that was Woodrow's first experience with overeating, although it was not the last. He no. led. <laughs> Such a labby thing, right? They eat steel wool. They eat sticks. He ate a tennis ball and it would come out the other end. Once he ate a rope toy and pulled it out of him like a magician pulling rabbits out of a hat. I'm like, well, it's still there. And he loved actually edible things as well. He loved hamburgers, meatballs, bacon, just about above all things, and carrots, which he would eat from the crisper drawer like a horse. He would just stick his whole head into the trough of the crisper drawer and take out five or six carrots at once and back away with them pronging out of his mouth and then lie on his eating rug. And especially when he was very old, gum them to death with his remaining four teeth. So right up until the very end of his life, he had a very robust appetite. He certainly did. And I think anybody who has owned a dog is going to relate to that. And while I know that there's a lot bigger themes in the book, people will really relate to the way that these dogs eat. I have to tell you, when you said George Clooney and Barack Obama for his voice, I actually, when I was reading the book, and whenever he would put his voice in my head. It, was, it wasn't that, but it did have a very different voice. Every time uh, some thoughts from Woodrow came through, it was like a mamu, mamu. It was really, really good. And um, So anyway, so not only did you learn life lessons, but it, it sounds a lot like the people in your life and the people that surrounded you and became your community also learned lessons here. Can you talk about that a little bit? I can. I don't want to really speak for people, but I think what surprised almost everybody was the magnetic power of this old boy to draw people into one place and form this tightly knit community around him. And I would see it with strangers mostly. I mean, I have a lot of friends in the back bay in Boston where I live who are dog parents. And so I was not totally surprised when they came to keep us company on the bench, which we would go to, by the way, morning and night in every season in all weathers, rain, sun, snow, sleet. I mean, we would be out there next to the bench because that was Woodrow's day. That was what he did. And so people would come and bring us food. They would bring me coffee. They would bring treats for Woodrow. They would bundle up in their parkas and come out and sit with us. And I was always really grateful, but that didn't surprise me as much as when complete strangers started to take notice of us as well. So there was one evening when it was summer and it was super hot and I started taking Woodrow out later than his usual schedule because it was, it was cooler. It was darker. And because he had congestive heart failure, it was hard for him to breathe when it was super hot. So one night we were sitting out under these big old trees that overhang the bench and it was dusk. It was maybe, you know, nine o'clock like summer dusk. And this woman and her daughter came walking by and she stopped and she said, oh, thank God. 
there he is. There you guys are. And I had never seen them before. And I said, yeah, here we are. And, you know, hi. And she said, we look for you every night. And we were so worried when we didn't see you the last three or four nights that something had happened to him. And she kind of lowered her voice. And she said, you know, every night we look for you because you set an example for us of devotion and patience and kindness and looking at you with your really old dog helps remind us to be patient and kind toward each other. And that was so astonishing to me because in my own experience, in my own skin, I was often cross with Woodrow and I was hot and I was cranky and I didn't sleep well. And he was a lot of physical work to take care of. So I thought I was being a jerk to my beautiful old dog and to know that people were taking different lessons from what I was doing every day sitting on the bench was incredibly humbling and really gratifying. Yeah. And isn't that the best? Isn't that just the best to have that feeling that you're really touching other people? It's just, it, I don't know, it helps you forgive yourself for being cross. <laughs> A little bit. There are still moments that I had with him that I probably will never forgive myself for. And that's okay too. You know, you have to forgive yourself for not forgiving yourself about things. There are always things that we wish we could do a little bit differently, mm-hmm. especially when we're under duress, when you're caring for an elder, when you're grieving. I think those are the moments when you can be at your most heroic without realizing it, but you can also be at your least heroic. And I think that's all <laughs> part of the package. Yeah. So so let's talk about how the book came together. What was your process for collecting stories and notes and um, things? Would, would, did you do it as you were going through all this or did you write it down and, and come back and pull it together later? Or what, what was the, the road to get the book finished? Well, the answer to that is yes, but because I'm incapable of giving a short answer, I'll give a longer answer. Okay. (laughs) I was taking some mental notes the last seven months of Woodrow's life, but mostly I was just being there for him. Like I had the growing consciousness that I was going to write about what the experience was like, the extraordinary experience of caring for my old dog and also then meeting all these fantastic people. But mostly the way I took notes was on social media. So you mentioned that Woodrow had his social media feeds, which he still does on Facebook and Instagram. And he throws shade from beyond the grave at (laughs) me all the time. And also at his successor, Henry Higgins, whom he calls the whippersnapper, my new new black lab, Um, but such are Woodrow's powers. But every time somebody came to the bench who I thought was amazing, like the guy who uh, sweeps the streets for the city of Boston who came to visit us every day and always said to Woodrow, like, how you doing, brother? What can I get for you today? You staying out of trouble? Like every day he would come check on us or the people who celebrated their 57th wedding anniversary with us on the bench. Like they came to Boston to sightsee and they stayed yeah. on the bench and the gentleman read a poem, a love poem to his wife on the bench. I mean, this was the kind of thing that would happen every single day. And every time something like this happened, I would say like the good social media ho I am, May I take a picture of you guys to post on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter? And I would do that and it left a record. And I did that on my own feeds. And I also did it on Woodrow's and Woodrow would give his own perspective on the people and canines who came to visit. And so I used this as my sort of bird tracks to go back to when I was reconstructing the experience. So for those writers who think social media has no value, it has even more value than just promoting your books, it's a kind of a living diary if you want to use it that way. Yep. Modern journaling, I call it. 
It's, it, it keeps a record of everything. I always say it so my, my kids will always know that I actually had a life. They can go back and look at everything. That's so right. And it's a beautiful life, too, because it's on social media. So. That's right. right. It's all only the best. Right? Only curated. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Oh, so I'm curious to know how you were able to sell this to the publisher. Well, I think Woodrow sold it. It's a great question, Ron. I did pitch it as saying it was like Tuesdays with Maury, but with the lessons from an old dog. And I right. think first, you know, my agent was not a thousand percent on board with me writing the Woodrow story, even though there is a chapter, the October chapter in this book, which is called Let People In. My agent figures prominently in that. And she yes. encouraged me when I couldn't leave the house because Woodrow was really struggling to let my writer friends come and write with me so I could keep that conduit alive between myself and my writing, even though I was in the midst of extreme caretaking. And my agent is a very wise lady. She was totally right to advised me to do that and to build some structure in and to keep touch with my writer self. But I remember saying to her, you know, Stephanie, um, her name is Stephanie Abu. She's with Massey McQuilkin. She's fabulous. Yeah. I said, I, I would love to write, I think about Woodrow when this is over. I'm sort of taking mental notes about it. And she said, she's French and she hates it when I do her accent, but she has this amazing accent. She was like, <laughs> well, Jenna, you know, I think that is a really nice idea because it will keep your muscles limber and we know you love Woodrow and you know we see how that goes but I think it will be a good way for you to process what has happened so she was not super excited about the idea of this being a book book but when the experience was over and I was processing and going back to my social media notes and constructing the book I sent her chapters it was a very fast write because it's only about 120 pages long as many readers know and it took me about a month to write and then six months to polish. And I sent it to Stephanie and she was like, didn't read it and didn't read it and didn't read it. And it was the pandemic oh. and the pandemic and the pandemic. And finally she said, Jenna, I'm so sorry. It took me a long time to read this because pandemic and COVID, but also because I was afraid because I knew how much you love Woodrow. And what if your books suck? And then I would have to tell you that your dog is, <laughs> your beloved dog is stupid and boring. And I didn't want to do that. Just, I love it. I yeah. love it. I love it so much. And I, you know, I'm scared of dog. I'm not a dog person. So I thought if I can make her fall in love with it, then it has a chance hopefully to reach a lot of readers. And my editor at HarperCollins, Sarah Nelson, who's amazing, an amazing editor, also not a dog person, said she cried in the pitch meeting. Um, so there's something about the reverberation of Woodrow's spirit to bring people together and his, he's not a sentimental dog. I mean, he is who he is. He's kind of a curmudgeon. He always wants to be fed. He thinks people are stupid, you know, like most dogs, like just feed us and let us do our dog thing. Um, but there's something about his personality and about the power to draw people together that I think is acting as a sort of a beacon. That is precisely what I thought about it too. I just loved it. And I, I did put it down only because I kind of knew what was happening, but I, I, I just didn't want, but as I kept going, it's like, I couldn't stop. And I, I just recently picked up the last quarter of the book and I, I plowed through it and I'm so glad I did. It's just so uh, life affirming. I know, I know that it's a tough time to go through, but there's so much to life in this book and you really have captured a lot of things that people can relate to. And I think anybody who has an old dog or who has dealt with aging parents um, can really, can really 
get a lot out of this. So I, I know it's going to be very well received. One of the things I love about this book is the way you marketed the book. You were so on it. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, I'm always on the marketing because that's what I do for right. Mighty Blaze. We lift writers up and we get them onto a screen so they can connect with their adoring online audiences. And prior to the pandemic, I've always been something of an out-of-the-box marketer. For my first book, I spoke to 800 book clubs in the Boston area alone Wow! in person, which was such a fantastic experience. So basically, I will do anything I can conceivably do <laughs> to get people to read one of my books. Like I was busking in the subway when I was, when I was first starting out, like literally like handing out business cards. And um, I really think that Woodrow lends himself well to marketing because he thinks everybody should pay attention to him. So I was uh, sort of whomping up his social media, my social media, and then doing my very favorite thing of all, which is baking and was sending advanced copies of the book to people I knew who were dog lovers, who were book reviewers or librarians or bookstore owners who had dogs, who loved dogs like yourself also. Mm -hmm. And I was sort of bribing them with these Woodrow care packages that included Woodrow Kleenex. And I'm sorry, I don't think I gave you this, but Woodrow mascara that says, have a good cry on yeah, me. No, I didn't get that. <laughs> I'll send you some if you really want. Um, <laughs> and Woodrow's maple bacon shortbread, which I make myself and, um, I make it because Woodrow loved bacon. And so every week or so, I make a huge batch of this maple bacon shortbread and send it out to readers. My publicist at Harper is so obsessed with it that she and her boyfriend place orders for it. She'll send me an email and say, I know we just got a batch and you don't have to bake if you don't want to, but the boyfriend really wants some more maple bacon shortbread. So <laughs> that, that was part of my marketing campaign. Feed everybody. Feed everybody, and they were delicious. And um, I know that you and I have a little baking history. We became friends during the pandemic by exchanging baked goods through the mail, even though we've never actually met in person. We will very soon. We we just keep exchanging. It's 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 a wonderful That's friendship. So weird. It really. I mean, it surprises me. I'm shaking my head. Right. It works so well on a podcast, but I'm shaking my head because it seems so weird to me that we haven't met in person because we've had such wonderful conversations and enjoyed this great rapport. And yep. we have a baking mutual admiration society, but also a literary mutual admiration society. Like so many of the events that I've hosted or produced for Mighty Blaze, there you are, and you're always so supportive and just amazing to writers in the writing community. So I feel like I've just been hanging out in your living room for the last two years, at least. I think that's true. I think some really, I think we need to redefine friendship after the pandemic too. I think there's got to be some new terms and words for it because there's so many people that we feel close to that we haven't really had personal in the same room connections, but boy, are we connected. We're very connected with these people. Um, so you mentioned Mighty Blaze a couple of times. Why don't you give us the overview of that and some of the highlights? Oh, the Blaze. Oh, my goodness. So the Blaze is a company that I started inadvertently at the beginning of the pandemic. I co-founded it with Caroline Lovett, whom many of you know, who is a fantastic novelist. And, and adore. And adore. Like everybody adore. adores Caroline. Everybody who knows Caroline adores Caroline. It is a law of physics. As it's, it's, she's, she's the literary godmother. <laughs> she is. She's basically like a big heart is yeah. the way I describe her. But she's also like not namby-pamby. Like she has a salty streak, but she's just like a, a, a wonderful heart, a wonderful person. Right. And at the beginning of the pandemic, 
I was on the tail end of my last book, The Lost Family, of the paperback coming out. So my book was not caught in the swinging door of everything closing, but so many people I knew were having their book tours extinguished by the pandemic and at a time when their books were just coming out and the books were being choked off. And my response to any cataclysm is indignation and action. And so I thought, hell no, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm just going to vomit up some social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Every Tuesday, which is when books come out in the publishing industry, I'm going to see if I can get all the authors to put their books on this page and draw people together so that readers know where to go to find out about the new books. And I felt like each book was like a little candle. But if we put all those candles together in one place, we could make a mighty blaze. And so that's where the the community came from. And Caroline called me or I called Caroline. It's a bit fuzzy. Um, And she was doing something called the Nothing is Cancelled book tour. She was inviting authors to send in videos describing their books. And so we fused forces. And within the first week, because everybody loves Caroline, we had we were like the only lifeboat rowing away from the Titanic. Like we had 1400 authors saying, please help me, please help me, please put my books on the blaze. But we also had great coverage from Vox and O Magazine and the Washington Post and Ron Charles and people who really gave us shouts out and a hand up and helped us help all of the authors. And now 18 months later, we have, we're like a TV station more than anything. We have nine regular shows from the Thoughtful Bro to Mighty Mysteries to the Friday Frontliners to a baking show uh, every couple Saturdays a month. We have Debut Spotlight. We have Authors in Conversation. And we have um, 35 people working for us. They're all creative professionals and every one of them is a volunteer. And so I feel like as somebody who lives by herself, except with her dog, and at the time I didn't even have my new dog yet. So I was completely alone in my apartment during the pandemic, except I was never alone for a moment because 16 to 18 hours a day, I was working on a mighty blaze with the people I love best in the whole world. So it really saved me. I'm not going to make any bones about that. I mean, without the blaze, I cannot imagine what would have happened to me. So even as we are trying to help other people, I think I'm the one who benefited the most. So well put, so well put it. But I think also from the reader's perspective too, it gave them almost a Mecca, a place to go where they could combine. And there's been communities that I have seen grow from my own library work. They travel to Mighty Blaze, they travel to Friends in Fiction. And so that it's this amazing group of writers that I think have such power. And so, and they're just I think and I've heard so many times that that these kind of events were a lifeline to them, too. So I think it's a big mutual admiration society. Well, that's the most humbling thing to me is when I see readers comment on the comment threads during an interview with with an author to say, this has really saved me. This is something my son looks forward to. You know, I am living in a rural area. I never would have been able to see John Irving or Anna Quinlan. Or today we had Lieutenant Colonel Vinman. He just released a book. Blew me away. uh, Blew me away also. And I was talking with our interviewer, Mark Cecil, about that afterwards in the green room. And he said, I just have to sit with a moment for the fact that I just interviewed Lieutenant Colonel Vinman. And I said, yeah. And a few months ago, you interviewed George Saunders. And right. <laughs> you know, in the moment, our job is to make these guests more comfortable so that they feel good talking about their work. But when you sit back and think about that, I mean, I have met almost all of my writer idols. And that never would have happened without the pandemic because I wouldn't have had the access. So I'm very, very grateful to be able to share that with readers because I know how they feel. I am in right. awe. I'm in awe all the time. 
here too. Same here. So I, I look forward to so much more about that and with that and, and more guests. And I think this is something that's not going to go away. It's just going to be always a part of the literary world. So I want to go back just a little bit in the, in the, in the bio. I just gave a little sketch things, but where did the love of reading and writing begin for you? What's your origin? The earliest I can remember writing anything was age four. And I started out writing masterful stories about princesses (laughs) and mermaids, and they were illustrated. I'm sure they were really, really clever. My dad was a writer. He was a news writer for CBS. And so he wrote for Walter Cronkite and covered Watergate and uh, the Ford. Uh, That uh, explains a lot. It does, right? (laughs) My earliest memories have the soundtrack of his typewriter. And all I ever wanted to do was grow up to be a writer like my dad. So I really don't have any sense of identity that is not predicated on being a writer. It's the only thing I've ever wanted to do or be. And I've always been a voracious reader. So even now, no matter how busy my day is, Usually I eat breakfast at about two in the morning, like the Blaze staff makes fun of me for doing this, but I will eat my breakfast <laughs> on my couch with a book. And if I don't get to read a book, an actual paper book, like once a day while I'm eating and not talking to anybody, I get really, really cranky. So it, it's nourishment for me. That's and totally understandable. A lot of us, you're not that different from the rest of us. <laughs> We all, we, we, we've got to have them. We've got to have them. So what, what are a couple of the book titles lately that have blown you away? One of the books that I really loved in the past couple of months was by a writer named Nicholas Butler, who lives in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where my mom's family is from, Minnesota. So we have that bond. But he wrote a book called Little Faith, and which I loved. Like I cried on the couch reading the ending of that book. And then I fangirled on him on Instagram via DM and he was probably like, who is this insane freak person? Because I was like, <laughs> you know, it's like Steinbeck and I love it. And I love it so much. It's so good. And then he wrote a book called Godspeed, which just came out in 2021 about three men in Wyoming. I want to say, although I might be getting that wrong um, in big sky country who are contracted to build an impossible house. And if they can build this house, despite all the odds, then they get like a million jillion dollars and it puts incredible pressure on them. And it reads like a fable, but it reads like a fable set in reality and how he pulls that off. I'm not really sure, but I found it totally engrossing in a way that I don't always find reads. Like I read a lot for work and um, I don't often get to totally lose myself in a book. And that one just grabbed me by the hair and pulled me along. So that was Nicholas Butler's Godspeed. That was a really good one. Yes, I've written that down. I can't wait to read that myself. Jenna, I, I can't begin to thank you enough for joining the podcast today. Um, your bravery in telling this deeply emotional story of your life with Woodrow is going to resonate with readers everywhere. And I know it's going to be hugely successful. I, it's so well written. It's so, it's, it's you on a page. It really is. It's just really you on a page. And you know that I adore you. And I can't wait to hear everybody's raving about the book when it's out this week. I can't thank you enough for that. And I should say that as I've watched the blaze grow and work with people to grow the blaze and lifted up a lot of writers, I have watched friends and fiction do the same thing. And I love knowing that we have a friend in this race and are really holding hands and running side by side and bringing 
books and authors to readers who welcome them as an author and as somebody who is a book promoter for the sheer love of books. I cannot thank you enough for doing that. I know it's a lot of work and it's also a labor of love. And, you know, I really, I salute you and take my hat off to you. So thank you for building this platform and for inviting me onto it to talk about my old boy. Oh, well, we all love Woodrow. We all love Woodrow. And I think Woodrow's going to have a very big fan club out there. He thinks um, that's really good. He thinks this is what he deserves. He's like, what has taken you people so long to know about <laughs> me? <laughs> that's exactly right. Thank you all for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Each week we strive to bring you interesting and amazing authors, books, and more. Thanks for listening, and please share with a friend. Remember, you can always find all the books by every Friends and Fiction Writer's Block podcast guest, past and present, in the friendsandfictionbookshop.org shop. All sales placed there help to fund Friends and Fiction, and a portion of each and every sale goes straight into the pockets of indie booksellers nationwide. Since its inception, bookshop.org has raised more than $16 million for indie bookstores. Shop small, shop local, from the convenience of your screen with bookshop.org, and tell them Friends and Fiction sent you. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.